1: Welcome to Past Imperfect. I'm Alice Thompson.
0: And I'm Rachel Sylvester. And we're talking to extraordinary people who've overcome
1: trauma or adversity to achieve great success. Our guest today is a man who is instantly recognisable, but hard to pigeonhole. Eddie Marsden is a character actor with an incredible versatility, who has starred in films including Vice, Deadpool, as well as the US television crime drama Ray Donovan and Grange Hill.
0: He's won a clutch of awards and worked with some of the most famous directors in the world, including Martin Scorsese, Steven Spielberg and Mike Lee. But he left school at 15, got a job as a printer's apprentice and only started acting in
1: his 20s. His father was a lorry driver, his mother a teaching assistant and he grew up in an East London council estate. I'm not what's fashionable at the moment, which is good-looking public school boys who make a film and then advertise Burberry bomber jackets, he says. I'm just not that type.
0: Eddie Marson, thank you very much for joining us on Past Imperfect. I can't think who you were possibly thinking of with the floppy hair and the Burberry bomber jacket. Um, Do you, do you feel that acting is too dominated by handsome old Etonians and old Herovians with freckles and floppy hair?
2: Yeah, I, can't, I kind of do, but I have to be very careful because I, I don't like the divisive rhetoric. I mean, a, a lot of my friends are old Etonians with floppy hair, good-looking boys, <laughs> and and I know what they've gone through. They've gone through their fair share of rejection, and also I've been i benefited from the kindness of people who, are, who have a much more privileged education and upbringing than me. I, I'm not one to think that um, wealth or lack of wealth is any indication of character. The easiest thing for me to do would to be a working class hero. And, and, and it's something that I it would be disingenuous and I wouldn't be comfortable kind of portraying that. I, I, I think one of the problems is, Idris Elba made a really good point. He said talent is everywhere, but opportunity isn't. And I think that's the best way to look at it. Because some of these guys who go on to be, who are, you know, the floppy-haired public school boys, they're very talented and they deserve their success. They're not successful because they're floppy-haired public school boys. They're successful because they're good actors. The problem is there's a lot of good actors from less privileged backgrounds who never get that opportunity, that's all.
0: And is it also that acting is a job where you, you, might, you have to take a risk, you might not earn money for quite a long period of time to start with, so you have to have enough wealth or financial security to take that risk?
2: Yeah, definitely. I think, and also with, with the idea of taking loans now for um, college education and drama school, it's very expensive. Yeah, you have to be, I mean, I, I didn't earn a living as an actor till I was nearly 30. I was a waiter, a labourer. I'd go back and do printing. I'd work in a menswear shop. I'd do everything. I'd take all these kind of jobs, what I suppose now you'd call the gig economy, where you could leave at the drop of a hat if you got a if you got a job, if you got a pantomime or something, or you got a or I used to get a lot of crime monthlies and <laughs> you'd go and do a crime monthly. I did every <laughs> time in London. And and so yeah, that was that was that was difficult for, for um, and it's easier if you have the bank of mum and
1: dad. And tell us about your childhood. You spent your early years on a pretty tough East End council estate. What was it like?
2: My parents had a very difficult marriage. So my home life was quite um, disruptive. But the community that I lived in was my salvation, really, was my... Um, I took refuge in the in, in community that I lived in. So... Um, There was lots of boys where I grew up, lots of boys whose fathers had court orders not to come anywhere near the house, like a hundred yards near the house. My father had a similar situation. He had a very um, difficult marriage with my mum and a difficult divorce. So um, we all grew up with a certain amount of chaos. And if you look back, if you look at us all now, lots of us have, have far exceeded expectations. Um, I got a friend of mine, David Hermit, who's, who's he's the chief executive of a multi-academy um, organisation. He was a teacher, and he now runs a multi-academy organisation. My friend um, Emmanuel is an is an artist, and one of the guys I, I who started his printing apprenticeship with me now runs a printing business. So I'm not the exception. And when I when we all get together and talk, what I gather from it is that it was the need to to have autonomy because of the chaos. We never really had very good positive father figures. And so we needed to find a sense of autonomy and control of our life because we were subject to such chaos.
0: And was there a lot of violence as well, either at home or in the state?
2: Yeah, there was lots of domestic violence and there was lots of violence on the estate. The National Front were always walking through most of my friends were black. Most of my, most of my friends were, um, there was a big St. Lucian population in the East End. So most of my friends were St. Lucian or Caribbean of one kind or another. And so there was lots of racial violence. There was lots of violence um, in pubs as well. Used to get into fights a lot. And, and you know, <laughs> I've been in a few scrapes and um, at times it was very hard. And it was very, uh, there, was a, there was a lot of violence, yeah. Lots of people getting stabbed. Um, lots of people getting glassed. Um, I'd always come, even when I was an actor, I'd come back from, from, from a rehearsal somewhere. It was really weird. I was still living in Bethnal Green, but I was rehearsing plays in rehearsal rooms somewhere with a load of really, like, doing, a, uh, I don't know, doing an, ex, uh, uh, an Albert Camus existentialist play, and I'd be doing rehearsing this play, and I'm playing Caligula, and I'd come back to Bethnal Green... <laughs> And I'm, I'm sitting on a train trying to read Albert Camus and trying to understand the philosophy <laughs> of existentialism. And I come off the train, and there was a guy, there was a famous, there was a guy in the East End, Bethnal Green, called Poogie Nose, who was quite, quite what I suppose you'd call handy. He, he, he was quite a tough guy at the area. And I remember coming off the train and having this, this Albert Camus book in my hand. And this Bethnal Green bloke came up to me and said, Oh, I heard, I heard Puggy Nose is after you. And I, I had no idea why. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm trying to understand Albert Camus and existentialism. I was trying to, struggling to understand. And then all of a sudden I had to, I had to, I had to find out why Puggy Nose was after me. And I had no idea. <laughs> Actually, someone else wanted to work work quiet word with him and said uh, it was all a mistake. But it, things like that happened all the time, all the time.
1: And did you have to learn to play a role on the estate, do you think? Did you have to either decide to be more submissive or to stand up to the aggressors or be part of a group? Were you always acting, do you think, even then? No, I
2: wasn't always acting. What I had was I I took refuge. There was a a St. Lucian family. Um, They were called the Mitchell family, Um, and and I'm still very close to them. Their their mum, Mrs. Mitchell, Joyce Mitchell, to me, she's always been mum, so I always call her mum. And... um, I would go to their house all the time. They had six children, so she would always feed me and always um, be, the door was always open and there was always food on the table. So I kind of took refuge with them and I benefited and I realize now in hindsight that there's something about an immigrant mentality which is more long-term than an indigenous white working class mentality. My, 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 the white working class um, mentality that I was born into was very short-termism. Everything was about, because of poverty, you couldn't think beyond the next week or the next two weeks, so everything was, was immediate. And then that meant there was an incredible generosity, but there was also tendency for irresponsibility. But, when, but if you grew up spending a lot of time with immigrants, people who'd come thousands of miles to give their children a better life, you suddenly realized about education and long-term thinking. So i benefited. From that, and actually, the people that I felt most that I was most afraid of and felt most vulnerable with were the white working class racists, and the people I felt safest with were the immigrants on my estate.
0: What about in your own family? Was your dad ever
2: violent with your mom? Um, I can't know. They had. All I can say is they had a very difficult relationship. My father's both his parents died by the time he was twelve, and. They were actually born, uh, he was actually born on Cable Street. I sound like Jeremy Corbett now. But he actually was born <laughs> on, Cable, on Cable Street. And, um, but th- he was one of nine, and I think six or seven of them died of TB. So he had a very traumatic childhood. My mother, my mother was a very bright young girl. She got into a grammar school from Bethnal Green, and she's one of the first people from Bethnal Green to get into this grammar school. But her father took his own life when she was 15, because he had mental illness, and she had to leave school uh, to help provide for the family. So both my parents had very, very traumatic childhoods. And then they married quite relatively young and had four kids in a very, very... The first house was in Mile End, which was an absolute um, kind of slum at the time. And they they raised four children there. And then we moved to Bethnal Green, when I was four. And I just think they tried their best. But there were two people in their 20s with four kids. And they couldn't really articulate their own trauma, really. That's Mm. that's all I can say. I I, I don't want to criticise them because I know how difficult it is to be a parent. And I think they tried their best.
0: Your dad was a lorry driver. Did that mean he was quite an absent father, that he wasn't around that much? Or what was he like as a dad?
2: um my dad he's still alive now um he his father was a, a lorry driver his father used to be a docker and then became a lorry driver and my dad became a lorry driver and my dad uh um it's very funny he he has um, he was he was around he, he didn't go traveling too far but um he always loved to fiddle my dad every job had to have a fiddle so and even now he sits down with my kids who who, who live quite a middle class life now and their cockney granddad comes around and they love to hear him tell tell us about the fiddles, granddad. And he said, Well, I used to get these geese and I go around there and he liked a dirty book. If I gave him a dirty book, then I could go around the back and take this and put it on the back of my mouth and all that. And they sit there and they're enthralled by it. <laughs> complexities of all these fiddles.
1: They sounded as if they worked incredibly hard. Did you feel that at the time that there was a very strong work ethic and that you yeah. had to get on and do yeah. something? Yeah, my dad
2: and... no, my dad always got up and went to work. My mum went to work. My nan lived with us and she worked as she was 85 as a cleaner. So, and I have a very strong work ethic and most of, most of my, my friends do as well. It was the, me- it was the means by which we could escape. We could have a certain amount of control of our life. And it was about self-respect as well. There was lots of that. Very hard work, very hard working. My parents divorced when I was 12. Mrs. Mitchell brought up her six children on her own and still went to work and, and raised them. And, and now they're all of them are, are very, very successful. So there was there was that. Yeah, we did work very hard. I still work hard now.
0: And what impact do you think their divorce had on you?
2: It lasted for a long while. My My parents first the marriage first broke up when they were 12, when I was 12 and it finally ended when I was 16. And the funny thing is when I was 16, when most teenagers at the age of 16 want to go and smoke dope or, or they want to go to pubs and start uh, getting drunk, I became a born again Christian. I became really embraced, I'm a kind of Pentecostal uh, West Indian form of Christianity. Because was that I, a
0: response to the divorce,
2: yeah. do you think? Yeah, yeah I, 100%. It was about trying to find some kind of order. for my. About, I didn't know who I was. I didn't know my place in the world. I didn't understand existentially what the meaning of my life was. I, there was no moral compass for me. And then, I, and then I lasted about seven or eight months. And then I, had a, I, had a, I think I had a slight breakdown, and, and Mrs. Mitchell helped me t- to come out of that. And uh, she was very kind, and then i kind of and 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 since then i i it, um i've ne- i've always had a healthy suspicion of any kind of ideology and religion i've always because I was so looking for an answer myself and I, and it wasn't where I found it that um i've always had a healthy suspicion because of that, so that's what happened to me
1: and you're a humanist now, but how yeah. long did it carry on for how long? Did you feel a sense of sort of religious purpose? And then how, how did the breakdown happen?
2: It was weird. We used, we used to go to, to different churches and go to Bible meetings. And, um, and I remember once going to Birmingham for some, for some, to go and visit a church in Birmingham and falling asleep in the van on the way back and then waking up and hearing somebody talk about birthdays. And the pastor said, well, we don't have birthdays anymore we don't celebrate birthdays. And I remember waking up and thinking, oh, God, what am I doing? And then mm-hmm. somebody said to me, and then about a couple of weeks, weeks later, there was one man who I admired greatly. I thought he was a real spiritual – he had a real spiritual quality to him. He was somebody I looked up to. And they said that we're going to go to Leicester Square to save homosexuals. And I, at the age of 16, I remember saying, save them from what? I don't uh, what, I don't understand – what are you going to save them from? And, the, and this man who I really admired said to me, well, you're not one, are you, Eddie? And I suddenly, he frightened me because I suddenly saw what was on the surface was this lovely, kind spirituality. Underneath it was a dogmatism. And it frightened me because it was very similar to the racist dogmatism that I heard from the NF supporting working class when I was younger. And, and, and it scared me and and when i was a, when i was a kid the baddies were the nf and the goodies were i suppose um the more progressive you know the the left wing the people who 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 facilitated the multicultural multiracial upbringing that i was lucky enough t- to live in and that meant zero tolerance for prejudice and and and, and you'd listen to ethnic minorities and you embrace diversity and um and it was very traumatic for me. Whenever I see that, whenever I see an ideology where there's dogmatism in it, 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 it always touches a nerve with me, always.
0: was so it almost as traumatic to lose your faith as, to, as the trauma that sort of drove you to the faith?
2: No, it wasn't, because what happened to me was I went to, I went to drama school. I, I finally got into drama school. I was working in a menswear shop from um, a man called Mr. Bennett, who was a, an East End bookmaker and ran a menswear shop. And um, he said to me, what do you want to do? I said, I wanted to be an actor. And uh, he said, if you get into drama school, I'll pay. And I got into a drama school eventually after two years. And and he paid my first year's fees and I had to win a scholarship to stay. But when I was at drama school, they, for the first three months, they teach you how to breathe. And there was a Buddhist center in Bethnal Green, um, a very famous Buddhist center. And I went there to kind of learn this breathing meditation because I wanted to get my breath deeper and, and more centered And then I have started to attend um, lectures and read books that they gave me on, on, on Buddhism. And one of, the, one of the main teachings of Buddhism that appealed to me was this idea called anatman, which is no self, which is the idea that human beings are not fixed eternal selves. They don't have a soul. They're actually part of what the Buddha called the great becoming. So they're actually subject to their environment and and you don't have to define yourself you don't have to think of yourself as a fixed thing what you are is an ever changing thing and that you can once you accept that then you can change and that i found that very very liberating plus at that time i was also studying acting and acting techniques about creating character so i then began to question my own definition of myself my own Um, The first thing to go was my own insecurities. I'm afraid the confidence and arrogance took much longer to go. (laughs) 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 Eventually that went to.
1: Why um, did you go into acting? Because you say that you knew you wanted to be an actor, but that's quite a strong statement to make when you're sort of 14, 15, uh, to know if you haven't done very much of it before, if you presumably hadn't gone to the theatre that much.
2: I left school at 15, uh, with no qualifications. When we was at school, we used to do plays, and I used to enjoy the plays, but there was no way I'd, I'd ever thought it was something I could do professionally. And when I left school at 15, I, the first job I got was actually in a wood factory, as a labourer in a wood factory at 15, and then, and then I became a, pr- a a printing apprentice. I used to dance a lot. Me and the guys from the estate, we used to love to, to dance. to James Brown and, and what we used to call Rare Groove. And then um, somebody saw us in a club and said, would you guys like to be extras in the film? And we, we jumped at the idea. And uh, they were paying us lots of money to do it, like 50 quid a day or something, which was a lot of money then. And uh, I went on a film set and I saw an actor do a scene and something in my mind just said, I can do that. That's what I can do. And from then on, I just wanted to be an actor. It was actually, it wasn't going to the theatre at all. It was actually being on a film set
0: but it also sounds as if your world or your life had almost become increasingly alienating. And I just wonder whether acting was also a way to sort of somehow escape that or or see the world through different eyes, look at things differently.
2: Yeah, it's to understand. I needed to understand. I still have now a great need to understand things. I always feel like I'm catching up because I haven't got an academic education. So I'm always trying to read books and trying to read things and, and, um, trying to understand philosophy and politics and economics. And, and um, I don't read, when I'm not working, I don't read much fiction because I read fiction all, all the time for work. So I read books on economics and philosophy and race and and things. So there is there was within me a great need. I, th- I think that 16-year-old kid who became a born-again Christian, it was the same thing. It was a need to understand in order to survive. I felt that the, the world was was confusing and chaotic and I thought it shouldn't be this chaotic it shouldn't be this confusing I need to understand and so that's what I've been trying to do ever since really and acting is a form of that it's it's an attempt to understand I'm still struggling to understand my place in the world now.
1: What was your first major role or the first role that you really thought right that's it I am an actor was there one moment when you thought I I can do this I've actually started Sort of something that I want to do for the rest of my life.
2: Well, I used to do I used to do fringe plays all the time when I left drama school, um, and I was learning to act uh, above all these pubs in London doing all these different plays, and I was attending uh, extra lessons three nights a week. I, even after I left drama school, I was obsessed with learning how to act. And there was one performance I, th- I think uh, it was one kind of restoration play. I was always the old man, by the way. I was always, I was never the dashing young bloke. Um, I was always <laughs> the old man with gout or something like that. But there was one way where I, I actually realized I could do it. It was after about five, four or five years. And I thought, oh my God, I can do this. And it was terrifying. Really interesting was how scared I was because really? I suddenly real, because, because I suddenly realized that there was no excuse anymore it was almost like I'd given up being a child. I, 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 This is what I can do. No one else in my family, no one else in my social circle knew how to do this. And suddenly this was something I had to do. I realized I could do it. And then professionally, it took another five or six years. And I did, um, my first paid theater job was chipping Norton pantomime. And I was, I was a clown in their pantomime. <laughs> <laughs> and um, it was a, uh, Career-wise, for the films, when I did Vera Drake and 21 Grams in the same year, one playing an American Baptist minister and one playing um, Reg in Vera Drake, two very different characters, and both films got got Oscar attention. And because I was a, a character actor who played two different parts in both those films, I suddenly had a career on both sides of the Atlantic, which was very um mm-hmm. Fortuitous.
0: It must have been a real struggle, though, to start with. You said you didn't really start making money till you were in your thirties. Did you ever think of quitting, or was it just did it feel like a vocation you had to keep going?
2: Yeah. You know, I never felt I never felt like quitting um, because I was learning so much as well. I was learning so much about you know, like there was one play where where they asked me to play Caligula. Like I said, it was and, and I had to study existentialism. I didn't even know what existentialism was. And suddenly I just so I would sit with all these actors, experienced actors who who had been to university or and had a great education. And they were so kind. They all sat with me and and they they gave me their time and they gave me their attention. And I began to understand. So actually it was a it was a it was a like going to university for five or six years. All I had to do was keep working, was was to be a. To, in the daytime, maybe to do to sell theater tickets or to be a laborer or to be a printer, but I never, th- I always thought I could do this. There was a point where, where I told you that point where I said, Well, I knew I could do this, I knew mm. how to do it. Um, there, there is something in me that's quite stubborn. Mm. I, I do have this thing where I think, Well, if they can do it, I can do it.
1: You're listening to Past Imperfect with Rachel Sylvester, Alice Thompson and our guest this week, the actor, Eddie Marsden. There'll be more from us after this.
0: To celebrate the beginning of spring, save 50% on full digital access to The Times and The Sunday Times for six months and stay well informed on the latest stories. Visit thetimes.co.uk forward slash sale forward slash past imperfect and subscribe today.
1: Welcome back to Past Imperfect with Rachel Sylvester, Alice Thompson and our guest this week, the actor, Eddie Marsden. Now that you've made it and you're incredibly successful, does it frustrate you that the left sometimes sort of romanticise poverty and idealise the sense of working class?
2: I mean, I am of the left. I'm just sort of not that, that far left. One thing I think they misunderstand is the need to the the aspirational working class. And one of the things I found problematic is the left have a narrative and their narrative is that their ideology, socialism, will solve these problems for these people. But it depends on these people being an homogenous group. And what happens is, it, it is in a sense a kind of narcissistic narrative for those of the left because they think you, you be what we define you as, and we will rescue you. And actually, when I look back at my mother, when my mother got, bought my father, and she, she bought our council house when she was 16. When I was 16, she bought it for the first time, and she suddenly had a property. And, other women, and, I, and I could see Mrs. Mitchell and other women working hard. What I, what, what I don't think the left understand is that aspiration isn't only material. It's also psychological. It's about having control of your life. It's about having autonomy. And that's what they don't understand. So they look at someone like me as, as, and they say, well, you doing that is a betrayal to your class. And you say, no, you don't understand me doing this. is, is my I needed to do this in order to survive. I needed mm. to have a certain amount of control of my life. And that's where I think the big mix up is.
0: So that you got into trouble with the Corbanistas a few years ago for saying you preferred dinner parties to pubs. Yeah. And this I've got it here. You said, where I grew up, pubs were often the places where men talk bollocks and then came home and beat up their wives. I like dinner parties. People share ideas and men often take their wives. I'm sorry if that makes me a traitor to your definition of my class. Why do you think that irritated them so much?
2: Because they thought I was saying that all working class people a wife beaters who go, and, I, and that's not what I was saying. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I was saying in my experience, I still have it now. I don't like pubs. I still don't like pubs. For me, pubs where I came from, in my experience, and this is just my experience, represented stagnation. I would see men go to pubs and and talk like they could run the country and manage the England football team, and <laughs> they never leave the pub. And also, when they came out of the pub, everybody would be scared. You wouldn't know how your dad would come home, in what mood he would come home. So I've never been a big fan of pubs for that reason. Mm -hmm. I was actually trying to say that this is the result of domestic violence. But people of the left just pounced on me and saw me as as a class traitor. And I'm not a class
1: traitor. Do you think that's because Britain's just too obsessed still by class? And why do you think the British find it so difficult, even to say when they do become middle class? Or you know, a lot of the Corbynistas were actually middle class. Why do they find it so hard to feel aspirational, you know, want to be aspirational, or admit that they're aspirational?
2: Um, I think
1: it's probably
2: because, from 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 my experience, it's based on their their own guilt about about their. Their privilege. I think that they feel like they, they feel guilty because they are born into a more middle class life and therefore they need to be to do something for those people less privileged than them, which is admirable. And, I, and, and there's lots of people I admire who've done incredibly good things and incredibly kind things and, and have been very generous. The problem is that there are people with really good good intentions, but human beings are to a certain extent we all of us are narcissistic so every story is about ourselves and quite often when these people of the of of for instance the corbin element that, that 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 dislikes me what i find difficult about them is they they want to rescue the working class but actually it's about them, and they're, they're in a film, they're in a, they're in a world where there's goodies, baddies, and they're the heroes. If you challenge that narrative in any way by saying, well, actually, some people want to be aspirational, some people want to have control of their lives, it challenges their narrative because they can't then sit at dinner parties and say, look what I've done. It's, I, I find it with filmmakers as well, quite a lot of left-wing filmmakers, when they go and find young actors, young kids who've never acted, and they go, I found this kid, I'm going to put them on a screen and watch how wonderful they are. And then they leave that kid, and the kid flounders, doesn't have a career, and then has a breakdown a few years later. And I always think about that. I always think, well, hold on a minute. I'm sure on every estate, you go on that estate and you always find a kid and you think, I'm going to find this kid, and I'm going to, and look how generous I am. I think about three or four doors away, there's a kid somewhere who goes in the library every day and reads plays and wants to be an actor, but you're not interested in them because mm-hmm. they're doing it themselves. You want to be – it's all about you discovering somebody. It's you helping somebody.
0: So it's almost like a saviour complex rather
2: yes. than actually – It's a, a saviour complex, and if you challenge that saviour complex – and suddenly, you your betrayal. You you don't want anyone to be saved, and it's not true. I believe hundred percent in the need for meritocracy. I believe in a redistribution of wealth. I believe that someone like me should pay higher taxes. I I believe in freedom of movement. That's why I, that's why I campaign for a people's vote. I believe in in that everybody should have the means by which they can fulfill their potential. I hundred percent. Believe that. And I believe that capitalism, if it's left unchecked, will, will create, well, will never create a meritocracy. The problem is that I think that, that human beings, you create a meritocracy, and human beings need to find their own volition. They need to find their own autonomy. And that's not selfishness. That's quite often to do with them dealing with their own psychological makeup and their own, and, and, and the own psychological dynamics of their upbringing. That was my experience. My friends now who are head teachers and running academies and running businesses, their impulse to do that didn't come from, from um, privilege, it came from adversity.
0: So, so, in a way, for the privileged, do you think then the ideology is almost a self indulgence or a luxury that they can afford to be ideological because they've got enough wealth themselves?
2: I don't think it's as black and white as that. You know, I don't, think, I don't think human beings are as black and white and binary as that. I, th- I honestly think they're, do- they're, they're trying to do good. But human nature is such that it's always corrupted by ego. Even as an actor, I know as an actor, when I give a performance, and if I'm being egotistical, it's not as good a performance as if I'm not being egotistical. So therefore, I think it's the same with these people who are trying to do good. I I don't want to demonize them at all. I I honestly think they are good people. They're trying to do good. They're just not aware. They have a blind spot about a certain aspect of their personality. I have it. We all have it. You know, we all have egos. We all do things and think it's all about us. (laughs) You know, every time you you, you you, you give to charity, part of you thinks, God, I'm great for giving to charity. We all do. It's human nature, so it's not that binary, really.
1: One of your upcoming roles is in Ridley Road, which is a BBC drama set in the East End of London about a group of working-class Jewish people who took on the anti-Semites and the British Nazi Party. Was there a particular reason that you chose that, or was it just a very good part?
2: No. Um, Sarah Soleimani, the writer, she wrote, she contacted me. I met Sarah in, in LA when we were doing, um, when I was doing Ray Donovan, and she was working, she was doing, she was a showrunner then writing over there. And she's a Jewish girl. And, she, and then when I came back to London, Ray Donovan finished, she called, she phoned me and said, I've, I've written this part for you of Solly Mal- Malinowski in this adaptation of, I think it's Joe Bloom's novel, um, Ridley Road. And she said, Would you do it? And nobody had ever written anything for me before. So I was very honored about that. She, we also spoke, she knew that I'd campaigned against anti Semitism. And, and I and. I was desperate to do something that helped to help really that was constructive. That wasn't just arguing on social media because Sarah said a great thing. She said, social media is an argument that you will never win, but art is persuasion. And I was Mm. really grateful for her to have the opportunity to, to do something constructive and play this part and, and do this. And it's a great, it's a great, uh, Script great drama, and it talks about working class Jewish people taking on anti Semites in the Nazi Party, and I was very, very grateful for the chance to do it.
0: Did you yourself witness that kind of prejudice and racism when you were growing up in these
2: days? All the the time, Mm. all the time.
0: What Um, happened?
2: The NF used to walk down Bethnal Green Road, and sometimes they'd go into the the, Bethnal Green Road. uh, There'd be estates off Bethnal Green Road, and sometimes they would go off the estates and they would throw bottles at my friend's windows and smash their windows. I, I once, when I was about 16, 17, I once came out of a club with a, a black friend of mine, Raymond, and then a car pulled up beside Raymond and somebody in the back window, in the back seat, wound down the window and grabbed his jumper and called him a black bastard and drove off. Dragging Raymond on the road, and I was drunk oh. i wasn't brave I, it was bravado. I grabbed his feet, and me and Raymond were dragged along the road and then they let us go and we bounced it was on a dual carriage very close to oh where was so there was lots of um, there was lots of racism my uh, friends of mine su- suffered a lot um, and it was uh, yeah it was it was it, it's very interesting. Tower Hamlets, what Tower Hamlets was going through in the 70s and 80s is is kind of what the country is now vocalising now. People are trying to work out who they are in a world of incredible change. But when you have an area like Tower Hamlets and other areas in the country of poverty, which is always subject to an unbelievable pace of change culturally, then people will react violently. To it, fifty percent of people will react violently. Fifty percent of people will embrace
1: the change. Do you worry that anti-Semitism seems to be coming back, or that the sort of you know anti-immigration aspects of Britain now—that we've become less tolerant, almost, or as intolerant as we were when you were growing up?
2: I tell you what. When we were doing Ridley Road, I was talking to a rabbi, a female rabbi. And she came from London and she moved to Manchester. And and when she was in London, she was very, very uh, pro-left and and, and very progressive. And she said, most of the racism that we, that all of us do is subconscious. We don't realize we're doing it because of our own implicit bias. So we have to listen to ethnic minorities. When they say, listen, when you do that, it it means this happens to us. And, And if you listen to them, and then you go, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't realize that. And then you change. The people of the left, because they were so sure that what they were doing, that they were that they were morally right, that they were trying to be kind. And when the 85% of the Jewish population was saying, listen, this is terrifying us because of what's happened in our recent history, this is terrifying. And they were going, no, 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 no. Let me tell you about anti-Semitism. Let me tell mm. you. And that's what I find the most offensive thing. That's what... I can almost forgive. If, if we believe there's systemic racism, then there will be implicit bias between all human beings because human beings are subject to the environment. It's like the concept of original sin. And therefore, the way out of that is honesty and forgiveness. But it's when you deny it within yourself and when the people who are suffering from your actions, even if they are inadvertently suffering from your actions, even if you don't mean to do that to them, and then you're going... No, 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 no. Let me tell you about it. that I think is wrong.
0: So you you made a film with your family during lockdown, didn't you? And your yeah. wife, who's normally makeup artist with the director, and your children were involved yeah. as well. How did that all come about?
2: My my agent phoned me and said I was in the middle of lockdown. She go, I've got a job for you in location. And I said, I can't leave the house. She goes, No, it's the location is your house.
1: <laughs> Nightmare, <laughs> and,
2: isn't it? Uh, well it was all practical, there was, there was, um, they needed, uh, it was a story with a father and two sons in lockdown. And, was your uh,
1: dog in it as well?
2: No, my dog wasn't in it actually, my, we had to send my <laughs> dog to my, to my mother-in-law's. And then, <laughs> and then um, David threatened to lived round the corner so he could get them on his motorbike and, the, and it was, and without going near anyone because it was the height of lockdown. And so it was COVID safe for him and it was perfect. So, so I don't think I, I got it because of the job. I got it because of the, the practicalities of it, really. And my two boys did it with me and my wife shot it. And it was great fun. It was good for the kids to learn.
1: And have you missed flying backwards and forwards to Hollywood or has it been a relief to be trapped in one place?
2: Oh, it's been a relief. I, I, I did it for eight years. I did, I did it. I, it was exhausting after a while. I used to do it every weekend. And, and it's just... To not, even now, my wife was said to me the other day how to not be jet lagged is such a nice, to, to, for me not to be jet lagged is such a nice feeling. I used to be jet lagged all the time, all the time.
0: And what about dinner parties? Are you ready for them again? Or are you now going to start going to the pub, do you think? <laughs> well,
2: um, I think I'd, I, you know, I'd love to go to the pub with Owen Jones. That'd be great fun. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> um, no i do I, I do miss dinner parties i miss. I miss talks with friends and see all that came what that actually came from was was when I was a young actor used to some somebody would invite you to the house and have a dinner party and you'd listen to these people talk about concepts you never heard before and I just think I just drink it all in. it was fascinating for me and um, and then you go back to bethnal green and 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 uh, and the pubs didn't didn't appeal to me
1: Are you very different to your father? uh when you're bringing up your children do you think i mean how how are you with them do you do stuff with them and do they all like acting with you
2: um i'm more around i I, am more around in in a sense that i you know i would come home every sunday and cook a sunday dinner and and um i'm more invested in their education much more their education is very important to me and i read to them uh at night one of my sons were reading Northern Lights, and the other my and my other son was reading The Power. So, and we talk about that. Um, I think I'm. I, I, I try not to be like my father, but sometimes I hear my father's voice. And I think, Oh God, he's, he's popped up, <laughs> <laughs> like we all do. I think, Oh my God, I'm my mum. Oh my God, I'm my dad. So, um, but I'm. I yeah, I am different. but I, but, but my life is much more comfortable than my father's. I think the trauma that he suffered as a kid, and it was, uh, was much harder than mine.
0: But in some ways, your children's upbringing is also incredibly different to yours. But is there anything that you think they're almost missing out on as a result? Is there a sort of resilience that you get from not having it all comfortable?
2: Yeah, yeah. That, that's something that me and my, a lot of my friends, we all talk about, is you work so hard to provide for them, and then you realise that you're taking away incentive for them. Which is, which is which is very, very difficult, which is a very difficult balance. There was something about my upbringing that I loved also was when I talk about short-termism, one of the best things about short-termism is immediacy. You, you, you know, someone would have a party every week. You know what I mean? You'd always, <laughs> there'd always be someone somewhere having a party and you'd have a knees up or a dance or, you know, or uh, they would, what well, they used to call blues, which are these reggae things, where someone you'd go in and someone would get a load of drinks and you'd all. I miss that. I miss that immediacy mm. and in, uh, of it of it all. Yeah.
1: And looking back at yourself now at the age of 12 when your parents split up, what do you wish that you'd known that you know now?
2: I think I'd. I'd I, I wish then I knew that it's okay not to know, it's okay not to be sure. There was something I read once in my mid-twenties with, is that ignorance is a human condition and, and, and don't be afraid of ignorance. And I, it took me years to learn that. I used to be sh- ashamed of my ignorance. And, um, and I hid behind this kind of tough guy, working-class persona. That's why when you first talked about um, the difference between privileged actors and working-class actors, why I kind of resisted that... I I had used it in a very manipulative way when I was younger, and actually it was because I was scared of being ignorant, scared of asking questions. And then when I asked questions, people were very, very generous with me. I think when I was younger, I always felt stupid. I always felt um, ugly as well. (laughs) I'm a very strange-looking man. I've always that's been one of my um, hang-ups. I think.
0: Do you think you'd have been a worse actor, though, without some kind of struggle?
2: Yes, but I don't think the struggle is necessarily to do with class. I think the struggle is more to do with, with um, family dynamics than to do with class. Um, because my, my father's parents died by the time he was 12, my mother's father took his own life at 15. That could, that's not class. That's something else. That's family. And that could happen in any family. And I know actors who have had privileged lives but have had, suffered incredibly tra- trauma. So that's not necessarily class. That's just being a human being and, and needing to, to understand in order to cope, really.
1: And do you actually quite like your looks now? Because they are, um, in a way, they're just memorable but forgettable, which is also rather incredible because you can just play so many different roles, can't you? Do you feel now as you're older that you're glad that you look like you do?
2: Yeah. Someone once said to me, listen, the uglier you get, the more you work. And I'm working an awful lot. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think, yeah, yes. I'd say what I think. I I think I'm, I'm, I'm unconventional looking. I'm the other. I'm not us. I'm the other. So, in a sense, I can always, and people's idea of the other is always very diverse. And I think that's my advantage. I don't think I'm I'm conventional looking. If I'm not conventional, then I'm unconventional. So in a story, I'm always the unconventional, the other. And it gives me and it means I can always work. Well, I'm also not very that kind of East End persona that I think. Ray Winston and Danny Dyer do so well. I think they do that much better than I do. I was never very good at it, really. <laughs> so I had to become somebody else. No one, no one asks me to be me. They always ask me to be someone, someone else, which I quite like.
0: I wonder whether your advantage is that you've always slightly been an outsider. So you're an outsider in your estate. You're an outsider in the left under jeremy corbyn and you're an outsider to some extent in hollywood and is that perhaps your advantage
2: that's on on, on a surface level um, maybe i mean uh, i'm in my life i'm not an outsider in my life i i, I do have a very I, i'm fortunate enough to have a very very good life i have really good friends and a good wife and a good marriage uh and and so uh, I'm, i don't feel like an outsider I Did feel you feel like, like you're
1: an insider then? Do you feel like? No, what no, would you I, say? I,
2: no, I feel like I I thought hard not to be defined, and I think when you're not defined, you can appear to be an outsider because that means that many people have many different opinions of you, which I don't mind really because none of them are true. I mean, I don't, but it's, so I don't. I don't. I just think people people have many different opinions of me because because I'm not. I'm never. When you see me, I'm never me. Do you know what I mean? I'm mm. never, if you watch, if you watch Deadpool, some people. I mean, some people on some Corbyn supporters literally think I'm a paedophile because they <laughs> see. Deadpool. Or they. One of them said, um, "How can you stand up against anti-Semitism? You played Himmler." Yeah. You know what I mean? It's so you kind of think. Well, I'm not those people. I'm not. I'm playing human beings. And so. And some people, I did a film called Still Life, where it was this lovely man who buries people who have, who, who, when there's no one to bury. And some people, he's almost angelic. And some people think that it's all, none of it's real.
0: Eddie Malson, thank you very much for talking to us. Thank you.
2: Thank you very much.
0: You've been listening to Past Imperfect with Rachel Sylvester, Alice Thompson and our guest this week, the actor, Eddie Marson. This is a Wireless
1: Studios production produced by Ben Mitchell.
0: To make sure you never miss an episode, you can subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts and listen back on the Times Radio app.
1: We'll be back with another Past Imperfect next week.
0: Until next time, thanks for listening.
2: If you've been affected by any of the issues raised in this episode or others in the series, please go to our podcast page or website where there are links to charities and organisations who are there to help.